The Marching Roundtable is proud to be an official media partner of Drum Corps International and Music for All. This is Tim Hinton, the Beast of the Marching Arts. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Tina Holmes Davis teaches music education at Georgia College and State University, and she does research on the impacts of disability in music education. At the age of 38, Tina had a massive stroke, which caused her to lose most of the use of the left side of her body. Since that time, she's relearned to play her clarinet using a special adaptive one-handed instrument and has become an advocate for disabled musicians in music classrooms. On this podcast, Tina shares her story and discusses product-based music education versus social-based. She talks about how to best create opportunities, which include students with disabilities in our music classrooms. This is all taken from a conversation she had with Dr. John Franklin. I feel like I've told everybody, so I have to remind myself at the beginning that there may be people who, who don't know. So the, the as short as I can make it is um, in December of 2016, I had a massive ischemic stroke to my, um, this is my right side of my brain. And so an ischemia is caused by a clot. So I had a a clot that was thrown from a dissected artery into my brain, and it basically um, caused a massive stroke, like the kind of stroke that you're not supposed to survive. But for some reason, I think I'm I'm stubborn. So Mm -hmm. here I am. So basically what that means for me is um, I have what's called hemoplegia. So the left side of my body is weak and doesn't function the way that normal bodies do. And that primarily shows up in my hand and in my foot. So my left hand is very good at opening doors. And as long as I don't do anything else, I can hold my coffee cup. If, if I get distracted by anything, I drop the coffee cup. Mm-hmm. So it, and there's no fine motor function there at all. So I can't like, I can't walk by the table and pick my phone up mm-hmm. and that's okay, except I'm a clarinetist. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh wait, sorry, let me back up. So the other thing is my foot. So I do walk with a dropped foot and I do um, struggle to walk sometimes. So those are the two things, my hand and my foot. But back to the clarinetist. So obviously, you know, being able to play clarinet was not gonna happen again. And we realized that early on, even before um, I actually have progressed to a point where I can actually open doors and things like that. For four months after the acute stage of my stroke, my left arm didn't move at all. The arm wouldn't move. The hand wouldn't move. And they were sure I was going to get to move it back. And all of the therapists were wonderful. And they were all like, oh, we're going to get you back to normal function. And I was like, you realize I'm a clarinetist, right? Because they weren't talking about Debussy. They were talking about holding my coffee cup, which Mm -hmm. I can't do either. But it does move now. So um, my husband, you know, kind of unwillingly, but as all of this stuff became real to us, started selling off my instruments because it was, we, we knew I was, I wasn't going to be able to return to playing. And I remember, I think it was Lloyd McDonald for the people in Georgia. Everybody knows Lloyd. Um, he came in one day and he said, we're going to make it so you can play your clarinet with one hand. And my knee jerk reaction was, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's no way you can play clarinet with one hand. But in fact, there is one gentleman in the world, um, Peter Worrell lives in Manchester, UK, and he does make a one-handed clarinet. And so the story behind that is Pete was um, an oboe maker. 
and um, he was, hang on, let me back up. He was commissioned, that's the word, to make a one-handed recorder several years ago, maybe 2013-14, somewhere in there. And he actually, there's a one-handed musical instrument trust in UK, which is a nonprofit organization that is devoted to making musicianship accessible to people who have one hand or one usable hand. So they have an annual instrument competition for, for instrument design, instrument building, all of this for um, things that go along with instruments that make playing possible for people with either hemiplegia or without limbs, you know, however it works. So Peter won the one-handed musical instrument trust competition with his one-handed recorder. And the, the world was just so excited for it that he realized how few opportunities woodwinds have. You know, if you're a woodwind with one hand, then you're just out of luck. Mm -hmm. So um, brass is easier. You don't really even need so much accommodation for brass because most brass, if you can hold it, you can play it with one hand. They do make one-handed instruments that are lighter. For instance, a trumpet that's lighter so that you can hold it instead of having to set it on a stand mm -hmm. and things like that. So there are opportunities available for brass players with one working hand or one hand, but fewer for woodwinds. So after that, Peter is himself a clarinet player. After he saw that reaction, he decided to set about to make a one-handed clarinet. And I will show you now because it's fun. So this is the one-handed clarinet. This is where the top three holes should be. They are not there. You can see that the, the holes are in the right places. They're just covered with keys mm -hmm. because my left hand will not do that. So those keys, these keys open and close what, what should be the three open holes, which does make the fundamental pitch of this instrument middle C rather than second line G. But otherwise it's pitched in B flat. It plays chromatically all the way from low E up to, I think Peter's fingering chart goes up to F above the staff. But if you can overblow an E, you can play a G. So it will play chromatically the full range of really what we'd expect a clarinet to functionally play. I haven't tried to go above G, above G, above staff. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I could find it, but I don't have any reason to because, you know, relearning this fingering system, which includes these keys here, um, has been challenging, especially because part of my brain injury had to do with the, the motor and part of it had to do with my executive ability. So I do lose focus very quickly. And if I lose focus tonight, y'all just bring me back. It'll be all right. Um, so I lose focus. And I also, you know, there is even as positive as I've tried to be with looking at my opportunities instead of my, um, my disability, there are days that I'm really sad. For instance, and this is not a fault, when I came to um, Georgia Southern's Christmas, it was, it was Christmas time. I don't think it was a Christmas concert, winter concert. You had the clarinet professor play the Weber concertino, which was actually the first piece I performed after I met my husband. And so the whole time I was sitting there going, I'll never be able to play that again. And again, it's not anybody's fault. It was a lovely performance and it's a lovely piece, but I'll never play it again. Because even with this instrument, I'm, you know, I'm relearning. So right now I play at a good high school band level, you know, mm -hmm. and I play what I can. I do a lot of editing just so to allow me to play mm -hmm. and um david nab is the 
Sorry, I'm going to cover everything, I think. David Nabb is the saxophone professor at Nebraska Kearney. And his story is very similar to mine, except he's got about 10 years ahead of me. His stroke was in 2000. And mine was actually, he's about 15, because mine was in 2016. So he designed with Jeff Stellings a one-handed saxophone for the same purpose. There's actually three one-handed saxophones in the world, and his is one of them. Mm -hmm. So um, he and I, you know, in a recent communication, he he really started talking about the difference between the typical product-centered view of music education, where what we're doing is we're preparing for the next concert, or we're preparing for the next competition, or whatever it is, but the product is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and in disability music, you see it's very social. We're, you know, not as in strictly disability, in, yeah, in music that is strictly for disabled people, we sometimes it's not even pretty to listen to. Mm -hmm. But the people are having so much fun and, you know, everybody's doing what they do. So, you know, I've kind of started looking into, and he's definitely started looking into the difference between our kind of product-centered view of music education and a more social-centered. Mm -hmm. This came up recently with me. I, you know, I've been writing a lot about opportunities for disabled musicians in music education and specifically from the point of view of disabled musicians mm -hmm. because we have a lot you know let's take music for the exceptional child we have a lot of books that are written by well-intentioned wonderful able people and mm -hmm. they know a lot and they're doing a great job but they don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they don't know what it feels like and so all the th sometimes they're they're good and I'm like yay and sometimes I'm like no that's not why you know so um, I've been doing a lot of that, and one of my colleagues has a student who's intellectually disabled mm -hmm. severely, and um, this child just wanted to be in the band. So this colleague put this student in the fundamental, like the lowest performing level group of his developing groups and gave them a triangle. They sit on the front row of this band and they play quarter notes on the triangle. And that is musically negligible. They don't help, they don't hurt. But that child is at every rehearsal, every concert, every bowling night, everything, because they are just so excited to be in the band. And all of the students treat them like they're in the band, because they are. And I was told recently by an editor for a journal for, regarding an article I was writing that that was pandering, or not pandering, insulting to the young musician. And I don't know this, you know, because it's a blind review process. I don't know this editor, but I'm guessing that they're not disabled because I've never met a disabled person who would think that's pandering. We just want to be, we want to be there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sorry that I could kind of went into the social versus product based, mm -hmm. but that's a huge thing is, you know, sometimes, you know, it's okay not to be the Allstate first share. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I hear a lot since I'm kind of going that way anyway, and just pull me back when I get too far. We, we can't have disabled musicians in the band or the orchestra, you know, because we can't divert that many resources to such a small group of people. Mm -hmm. But now we're in a catch 22 because you don't have resources. So I know I'm not welcome, so I'm not coming and you're never going to have enough people because, because we, we don't, we don't belong. So until we do a little bit, we're not going to have enough people to justify a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy when I walk in the door because I bring my instrument. I wrote grants and this is actually this belongs to Georgia College because I wrote, I wrote grants and they gave me the money to buy this. So but when I walk in to the groups I play, 
you know, if I walked in without my instrument and said, okay, I'm a clarinet player, but only one of my hands works, mm -hmm. then everybody would be like, well, that's nice to meet you, but have a nice day. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But when I walk in with my instrument, then suddenly I have a place. At this point, we asked Tina if she had suggestions for what resources were needed to help be more inclusive to students with disabilities in music ensembles and classes. First of all, I think it's probably unrealistic, especially given the, the many and diverse ways that a human body can be disabled. Mm -hmm. You're not going to keep a one-handed clarinet in your inventory. That, that doesn't make sense because you, you may never actually need a one-handed clarinet in your ensemble. So basically, I would say rather than starting with like acquiring these instruments for disabled people, because, you know, you, even with the one, I'm sorry, I'm going to make a statement. Even with the one handed clarinet, it comes in right handed, which is what I have and left handed, which is turned this way because I might have the other hand, you know. So what you what you want to do is make those relationships. And I already mentioned the one handed music instrument trust in the UK. They don't do so much with the United States yet, but I've, they're wonderful people and I've spoken to them. And I think that they would branch into the United States a little bit more if we had a little more demand for them. Mm -hmm. But they do um, they sponsor all of the innovation and the um, the competition for people to create instruments. And there are many. So you can even just go to their site and there's past winners and you can see, OK, there's a, a trombone sling. And it'll tell you who invented it and it might even link you to their website so that then you can reach out to this person and ask, how can I purchase um, the trombone sling or whatever it is? You know, there are cello stands where you can lay the cello out for people who play with their feet. Mm -hmm. And um, so you could start with something like that. In the United States, we have um, United Sound, I think. Mm -hmm. They're less with the instrument side of it, but more with the involvement side of it. That might be a good place to start. Next, Tina speaks to the mindset of a disabled student who's coming to our music classroom. All right, I want to start with um, with the fact that I was disabled at 38, so I never experienced it as a child. But one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Bonnie Vonhoff, she and I have done a lot, and she has cerebral palsy, which is a curse of course, it occurs at birth. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use some of the conversations that I've had with her. Great. But a lot of times it's just... Uh, um, there is a consistent kind of, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and so there are a lot of times where, you know, they go, I want to play baseball. No, you can't play baseball. Mm -hmm. Or even like Dr. Von Hoff, even as she got older, you know, and she's got the most gorgeous German mezzo-soprano, very heavy, heavy mezzo-soprano. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't allowed to do opera scenes and things like that because they were afraid she'd fall. Now, we don't tell able people you can't do it because we're afraid you'll fall. Now, right. of course, she is more likely to fall, but she doesn't always fall. So mm -hmm. it's just, I say that to say, you know, there's a lot of just you don't even get to try. Mm -hmm. And so in anything, absolutely anything, the triangle, anything that allows us to try mm -hmm. is amazing because, you know, you just after a little while, the phone stops ringing and you start feeling like you don't belong in the world because there's no place for you. So like the little triangle player, when this child sees the band director out anywhere, it's an immediate like barrel hug. Mm -hmm. because they, they have a place in the world where they have friends and where they fit and they belong. And the music is nice, too. But that's not why that child is in the band. Mm -hmm. So and that's why I keep going back to that social versus musical product. 
Mm -hmm. Really coming out of the 19th century, we have really as a profession decided that the musical product trumps all and that is the only reason to music. Mm -hmm. And in the world and history, that is a very unique position to be in. Typically in the world and in history, music is social and it serves social functions. I'm not going to give my citations for that, but <laughs> so um, so it's interesting to me that that's where we find ourselves. But it has the the impact of being very exclusory mm -hmm. because there, you know, if you can't be the first chair Allstate player, then there's not a place for you in the world. Right. So yeah, so that's where we start. So basically, you know, we we just want to try. And so anybody who will let us try, we will try harder than anybody else you've ever had because you're the only person, you know, we're not going to football practice during your band rehearsal. You know, we're not doing cross country. We're not on the chess team. We're not on the debate team. This is this is what we have because you're the only person who said yes to us. Avoid pandering. Right. Yeah. Let the triangle player sit on the front row and just don't mention it ever, ever, ever. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, we're not there for that. We, we want to be in the band like everybody else. And unless you're making a nightline performance about everybody else, just let us be in the band. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So actually that's in the disability community, that's called disability porn because mm -hmm. it serves, the only function that serves is to make able people feel good about themselves. Sure. Sure. Yeah, we, we like to avoid that. Just, just put them in there, let them play. You know, yes, there's a wheelchair on the, on the field. Just act like that's the most natural thing in the world for there to be a wheelchair on the field and let it go. Tina next returns to talk again about product-based music education versus social-based. Sure. So, and then also I wanted to say earlier, you know, when I was a middle school band director, one of the things I always told my eighth graders about marching band was you're going to start school with 250 people that you already know before school even starts. And mm -hmm. we use the social aspects of music education to to keep our able students in the classroom. But then we kind of back up and go, oh, well, we can't do, you know, we can't, you know, use the social aspect only. And mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, why not? Why is it okay for our able students and not our disabled students? Right. And I think it's just a comfort level. I don't think there's, you know, a big prejudice necessarily. There certainly might be people who are, but I think overall it's just a comfort level. Let me clarify, I am no way suggesting that we should put out horrible products. Mm -hmm. if, right. you are, um, if you have a performing ensemble and your ensemble is performing, then they should be performing to the standard of your ensemble. So, yeah, um, but the way I have seen, you know, people do it um, in terms of having a band that is that kind of, if you have enough people to have multiple groups, you have that one band that is the product centered mm -hmm. and you have people in that group that are able and willing to work to that level. And mm -hmm. then you have other opportunities. I don't think as a profession, I see across the wide scale that we're doing enough for our non-performers and for those who, who really are interested in the social aspects. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at our middle school and high school education opportunities, it's basically ensemble classes. You can do band, orchestra, chorus, but you can't always everywhere. You can't take appreciation. Mm -hmm. You can't always everywhere take composition or, you know, technology or any of those other things. Now, some of that is resources, again, because not every school and not every school system can afford to have a technology lab or, you know, a MIDI lab or, you know, the things that allow us to do these things. But as a profession, we seem to have put ourselves into that niche of performers only. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, when you when you take that 
and expand that, then our disabled students naturally have more places to fit in. At the end of the conversation, we asked Dr. Holmes Davis to sum up her thoughts on this topic. Uh, the two things I always like to say is let them try. Even if you can't imagine a way for them to succeed, let them try. Any foolhearted, you know, anything that you can put together, you know, let them try and they might fail, but they might succeed. And then the final thing, and the reason I always call my performances open the door, it's after the James Brown song. Um, I don't want nobody to give me nothing, just open up the door and I'll get it myself. Mm -hmm. Is the first question I always ask, you know, people ask me is how much, how much of my time or energy or money is this going to take? Sure. It doesn't matter. Just open the door, mm -hmm. you know, find, find a way. And we don't need the most expensive, most flashy, just, you know, find a way. Watch for an upcoming webinar on April 2nd, 2024 where we will have a group discussion centered on product-based music education versus social-based. It will include Julie Duty of United Sound, Dr. Tina Holmes-Davis, plus other authorities on the topic, including a high school band director who does a great job of balancing these. You can watch this entire conversation we just shared with Dr. Holmes-Davis at marchingartseducation.com. There's a link to that webinar where this podcast is located. This is your host, Tim Hinton, the Beast of the Marching Arts. Find out more about me and the services I offer at beastofthemarchingarts.com and check out my new paranormally-themed bed and breakfast, The Phantom History House, at phantomhistoryhouse.com. And again, thank you so much for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LCL Mentors, found at lclmentors.com. Gary Rupert is here from LCL Mentors. Gary, can you tell us about the mission and the work that LCL Mentors is doing? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. LCL is a network of music educators across the country. Well, actually, not all music educators. We have other educators as well that are strewn across the country. And our mission is to kind of fill the gaps for music programs at both the collegiate level and at the public school, private school level where they are needed. We have people that have expertise in a variety of different ways. And the great thing about it is that if we're working with a group and they need something, then I know a person who knows a person who knows a person, and we can connect them with the people that they need that can help them out. We actually offer services at a variety of different levels. We do student leadership programs for all the bands. We do staff development programs. We also do one-on-one -on -one mentoring for school systems where we are mentoring teachers through the course of the year during a time when they need the most support and help.